The following audio is brought to you by Summerside Community Church in London, Ontario. For more information on Summerside, visit us online at www.summersidechurch.ca. One of the one of the stunning things that you will see if you read any of the four gospels in the New Testament are the way that people react to Jesus. No question, during his life, he tended to draw a crowd. In fact, we find out in scriptures that his fame spread, uh, is what they say, often. And the Gospels tell us that the crowds were very often amazed or astonished at his miracles and teachings. And yet, for the most part, those same crowds who came out for the show, so to speak, who hung back on the fringe tended to move on. Kind of like going to a London Knights game. You know, the game's over and then everyone's rushing to the parking garage so that you can try to beat traffic and not get log jammed out there outside of Budweiser Gardens. That's, that's kind of like the crowd. But for those, and we see this in the Gospels, who, who stayed a little longer, who watched a little closer, who pondered more carefully who the real Jesus is, I'm telling you, there's always an extreme reaction to Jesus. This is something that John Stott uh, says in this very classic book here called Basic Christianity. Short little read. I encourage every family to have a copy of this book. It's impacted me tremendously. Uh, but one of the things he says throughout the book, and I'm paraphrasing the whole book, is that there's always an extreme reaction to Jesus. He says, I'm paraphrasing, if you actually heard the real Jesus, if you ever actually met the real Jesus, if you really saw what he was saying, you either hated him and tried to wipe him out, or secondly, you were scared to death of him and tried to get as far away from him as you could, or thirdly, You knelt at his feet and laid the sword of your life before him and said, command me. You gave your life over to him in adoration. He says those really are the only three rational responses to meeting the real Jesus. And it's this real Jesus that the Gospel of Mark aims to vividly give us every time we look at a passage. This is our third week uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Last week we saw Jesus in the water at his baptism and in the wilderness at his temptation. And now for the first time in Mark, Jesus moves and he speaks with authority. An authority that's going to be obvious for the next eight chapters, but really which is uniquely set up in this passage we're going uh, at today. And the question I want to ask you, just hanging over the whole sermon, is this. To what degree has the authority of Jesus gripped you? To what degree has it gripped you? Now, the answer to that question is going to be affected by how well you've seen and understood the authority of Jesus. And this passage is going to help us to do that in three ways. It's kind of the basic outline I'm going to do for you this morning. You can really see the authority of Jesus on display through a global proclamation, a personal commission, and a supreme 
confrontation. So we're going to go through them one by one, starting with this first thing, through a global proclamation, verses 14 and 15. And oh, by the way, I'm not putting the Bible on the screen today, so you'll have to open your Bible or check your screens. If you don't have a Bible, we have them uh, in the uh, pews in front of you. You can grab one and get yourself over to Mark chapter 1 if you want to follow along. Through a global proclamation, notice verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus came in to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. Verse 15. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, I want to uh, situate you uh, geographically here today. So today we can call it today's map day. And... Um, uh, we're going to look at a few maps, uh, and uh, for all the times that you've been uh, holding your Bible wondering, when am I ever going to get to use the maps at the back of the Bible? Today's your day, so you can follow along. You've got about eight of them. They're all nice. Um, all I really want you to see here is, in this picture, you don't need to see the cities, but I just want you to notice the, the Israel in the time of Jesus, that there's really two seas. There's in the north... There's this smaller Sea of Galilee. This is uh, the northern part of the land of Israel. It's the hinterlands, so to speak, um, with its Sea of Galilee, easy identifier. And then to the south, connected by the Jordan River, is the Dead Sea. It's the uh, southern area of Israel called Judea with Jerusalem, a, march, a much larger region. Um, why am I doing this geographic lesson for you? Well, in verse 14, again, notice what it says. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, that whole region, proclaiming the good news of God. Now, what you need to know is time has passed since the baptism. He stayed in the south during all of that time doing some ministry. um, But it's really John's imprisonment where Jesus then moves to the north and he launches his public ministry in the Galilee region. And that's where Mark really wants to start. Some have actually suggested that he left Jerusalem as a statement about the uh, religious corruption uh, in Jerusalem. Um, and by going to Galilee, he was going to a place uh, that he knew that the, uh, the hoity-toity down in Jerusalem uh, viewed as a very dark place. Um, and that's because uh, this region of Galilee was an area where the Jew and Gentile population collided. It was considered a, a city by the Jews in the south where of, of death, dark, darkness, sinful, and demonic. Full of mixed races and cultures and religions. Uh, that was the view. Interestingly, it was in Galilee where Jesus was born in that town of Nazareth. Interestingly, it's in Galilee where Jesus fulfills a prophecy about him that that's where he would come. It's actually a prophecy I think most of you are familiar with, Isaiah 9. Do you remember that one? That's where it says, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Do you remember that one? That same chapter in Isaiah is the one that says that the Messiah would arrive in the Galilee of the Gentiles or the Galilee of the nations. 
For those who walked in darkness will see a great light. Well, uh, the great light is coming and he has a global proclamation. Look at verse 15. The time has come, he says. The kingdom of God has come near. In other words, what Jesus is saying is all of those Old Testament predictions and prophecies are about me. They find their fulfillment in me. Now, that in itself should give you a little bit of cause to stop. That's quite a statement to make, isn't it? To say that all of the prophecies of the Old Testament find their fulfillment of me. The entire Bible, as we know it, Jesus is saying, points to me. And I'm bringing in the kingdom of God. Now, I could spend loads of time talking about the theology of the kingdom of God, and that would be for another day in a, in a class. But I'd rather just let that unfold naturally in this book. But I, I do want to just say this about the kingdom of God, just so that you have some clarity. There, there's kind of a now and a not yet in the Bible to the kingdom of God. In Mark, what we're going to see is that when Jesus arrives on the scene, he's bringing in, he's ushering in the kingdom of God. We call this the inauguration of the kingdom. But some things need to happen. His ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and then Pentecost. All of those things to have to happen. And then at that point, Jesus is ruling and reigning in heaven, we know from the scriptures. We call that the continuation of the kingdom. And then finally, there's something called the consummation of the kingdom. And this is really the great hope of the Christian life. The hope that there's a day coming when Jesus Christ is going to return for a second time. And when he returns, he's going to deal with his enemies once and for all. He's going to bring judgment. And he's going to usher in the new heavens and the new earth for his people. So that's the snapshot of the kingdom of God. Jesus is just bringing it here. So my point is just, when he says the kingdom of God has come near, what he's saying to you and me is, it's in me right now. I'm the king to come. And my first order of business as king, we need to get this straight, folks. Verse 15 is, repent and believe the good news. This is a theme picked up by all of the apostles when you read the New Testament when they preach. Do you remember on the day of Pentecost when Peter was preaching uh, to thousands of people? He was telling them about Jesus and the need to believe in them. And they say, they're all convicted, they say, what shall we do? And he says, you need to repent and be baptized. Now, what does repentance mean? To repent means to have a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of direction about who I am and who Jesus is and what he commands. It does not mean to feel sorry. Now, there may be sorrow in repentance, but there's a difference. To be sorry simply because I'm caught or I've been called out, and if I hadn't have been caught, I wouldn't actually feel sorry. That's not repentance at all. But to repent 
is to realize who he is, that what he did in the death he did for me, the death that I deserved, the one uh, that I was a rebel and he wasn't, but he stood in my place, that he showed kindness and mercy and love to rebels against God. When I realized that he gave his all for me, I place my faith and trust in him. That is repentance. And here's where I'm going with that. Because when you actually repent, you are able to, and you are now in a place where you say, well, I can no longer say I'm just going to live however I want. There's a turning away in repentance. Away from my own independent agenda for my life. That's what defines me as a disciple of Jesus. The king has spoken with clarity about the time, the kingdom, and his message. And it falls on me this morning to ask you the question. Have you made a decision on this matter? Well, actually, I have have not made a decision on it about Jesus. So you voted to abstain, did you? I want you to know that that is a decision in and of itself. All of us have decided one way or another, either for or against the rule of Jesus in our lives. Either he rules and reigns in our lives or he does not. Well, Leo, I need more time. I need more information. I need more convincing. Okay, let's see Jesus' authority throughout the rest of this passage. That may help you. Look at this second thing. We see his authority through a personal commission. Notice verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee. Okay, pause. Back to the uh, first century geography lesson 101 I'm giving here today. Um, uh, there's a map up there. Now we're looking particularly at uh, the Sea of Galilee region. Notice in the bottom left-hand corner of the screen uh, that town of Nazareth where Jesus was born. That's really the hick town of the area. It's not the towns around the sea, actually. Around the sea, uh, busy commercial fishing towns. At least, uh, from what we know, 16 harbors on that little sea, with fish being the main diet of the Mediterranean world. This was a ideal local and export market um, uh, gong show. And if you were an entrepreneur, biz ops, biz rev type of person today, you were, you're probably thinking right now, if I were there, I would have killed it. I mean, the business opportunities were incredible. Look at verse 16. It says, He saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Now, uh, it's not stated in Mark here, but from the other Gospels, we know that Jesus actually already knows these guys. In John 1, verse 35, for example, um, we know that they came down to his bapt- to the baptism of John. Uh, Simon uh, was renamed Peter by Jesus uh, then, and, uh, and Andrew came with him, was formerly a disciple of John the Baptist. So they saw Jesus, 
John uh, told them he was the Lamb of God. Uh, they spent time with Jesus. The seeds of faith were already being sowed there. Now, eventually, they went back home uh, to run their business. Uh, but I just love the fact that Jesus seems to be here tracking them down. He finds them months later. I just wrote in my Bible, found you. Verse 19, it says, When he had gone a little further, he saw James, and James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. So, two more fishermen, actually in partnership with Simon and, and Andrew uh, Corporation, I guess you could say. Actually, I'd like to break the stereotype here we have that uh, these were just simpleton fishermen guys, which, you know, we kind of have from some Sunday school classes we've been to because they may not have been the educated religious elite or of the wealthy class down in Jerusalem, but you need to understand that these were industrious business owners. They were, they were operators, okay? And given where they worked, they likely could get by in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek to do business in a trade route culture. They're in a family business as brothers working with two other brothers. That's, that's who we're dealing with here, guys. Verse 20. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. How kind it was, actually. In a culture where family was so central for Jesus to call two sets of brothers on a journey so that they could be family together with him. Now, the problem with this story of Jesus on the shoreline and the fishermen is our overfamiliarity with it. I mean, some of us sang songs about it at camp as kids. You know, the story of some fisher dudes and Jesus, and we think that's a nice scene. Actually, it's not nice. It's outrageous. I mean, who is this man who disturbs people's lives like this? Who is this guy who thinks he can just walk down the street and talk to gainfully employed people and say, follow me. Drop everything you're doing and follow me. And by the way, that is a command he's given in, 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 in the Greek. It's a strong personal commission and the immediacy of their response blows my mind and the only explanation for their response and to uh, to this outrageous call really is in the fact the they uh, of the authority of jesus the identity of jesus and the personhood of jesus he's not like any other person Ever. He's not like some religious guru that went around trying to get a little cult together to follow him. This is the incarnate Son of God on the move. That's why C.S. Lewis's famous quote that has stood the test of time, by the way, is uh, still so relevant today. And I just want to read it for you. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic 
on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worth worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall down at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being some great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He's the king who says, follow me. And they leave behind their boats. And for James and John, their father. And we know actually from reading the other Gospels that they did fish again at times. We know from other Gospels that they did talk to their parents again. But what Jesus is saying here is radical. Why? Because what he's really saying in this is, I want priority. I want priority over your entire identity. All the things that define you, your family, your business, all of it. I, I, I want, I want you resembling me. I want you pleasing me, serving me, knowing me. That, that needs to be the passion of your life. Everything else, all these other things need to be realigned and adjusted to fit into your relationship with me. Everything else now becomes second. That's what Jesus is saying here in this great follow me call. I'm going to be taking you on a journey, he says. I don't want you to turn to the left or the right. I want you to obey me. I want you to put me first. I want you to do my will. I want you to keep praying. I want you to stick with me, not turn back, not give up. And the transformation that I'm going to do in your life as you fellowship with me, as you spend time with me, is going to turn you into fishers of men. That's my plan for how the kingdom of God is going to come. And uh, we'll be going through the biographies on these uh, disciples more later in the book and All I'm going to tell you is you're going to see change in these guys over their lives. And the kingdom of God will grow and spread his gospel through them, just as you and I are called to be in on that program. So I just want to ask you this. Have you ever processed this call really? Willing to say... Lord, I will be your disciple, despite the cost. Now, some of you here today, perhaps are in the midst of one of the most incredibly wonderful seasons of life. Incredible career, wonderful family and social life. And yet God has been working in your heart in some way, tugging away about a calling to you to either missions or to serving in the church, perhaps vocationally in some way. And there's some aspects you already know are going to cost you that are dear to you right now. I'm asking you, are you able to say, Lord, I will leave my boat in nets and I'm going to follow in the way.
perhaps for others of you, the call in discipleship for you is different. Not calling you from your vocation, but to continue in a different way as a business person, as a professional, as a healthcare worker, as a tradesperson, as a teacher. To stay where you are, but to embrace Jesus the way he expects you to. To live totally different than the way you have been. By a different set of priorities than ever before. Later during communion, as you reflect on his death, what I want to seed your thinking with right now is to reflect deeper on not only what the cross is, but what it means for you today and what he's calling you to do. Here's the third thing, the final way we see Jesus' authority through a supreme confrontation. Through a supreme confrontation. Notice verse 21. They went to Capernaum. All right, map quest time again. By the way, have you noticed that each time we look at the map, we're zeroing in more each time? I mean, at first it's the region of Galilee, then it's the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. Now we're in a town, Capernaum. It became the largest city on the lake because it was actually the crossroads of trade for the entire region of Galilee. Um, it actually had a Roman garrison there uh, due to the volume of people and trade and crime. It had a customs tax office where Matthew worked. Uh, by the way, he'll join the team later. We'll get to there at another point. It was an evil city in every way. Actually, in the book of Matthew, chapter 11, Jesus says this. It's kind of stunning. It will be better for Sodom on the day of judgment than Capernaum. And that's where Jesus chooses to set up his headquarters. Where he will be operating out of for much of his ministry in Galilee. I love that. Light in the darkness. Look at verse 21. And when the Sabbath came... Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Uh, Did you know, by the way, that there were no synagogues in the Old Testament? You won't find them. Why? Because the center of worship for Jewish people was the temple. But the temple was destroyed. And so the people still wanted to gather together to hear the law read and be together and and worship in some way. So they came together in these small groups. Synagogue actually means to come together, kind of like a church. And during the time between the Testaments, and certainly by the time Jesus arrives on the scenes, there are tons of synagogues all over Israel. It only took 10 Jewish males to establish a synagogue. Um, They got together on the Sabbath. The law would be uh, taught by an elder or a scribe. And visiting elders uh, would often be asked to speak. Luke tells us that it was Jesus' practice to go to the Sabbath, to the synagogue, every Sabbath, as any Jewish male would. A ready-made opportunity for Jesus to preach. The Apostle Paul would also do the same thing on his missionary journeys. Verse 22, notice, the people were amazed at his teaching 
because he taught them as one who had authority, not like the teachers of the law. Now, who knows what they were used to? I don't know. Likely some snoring at the back of, of, of the building. Um, but these teachers of the law were kind of well known for kind of pontificating and speculating on interesting concept, uh, philosophizing about this and that, not Jesus. He came and preached God's word with clarity and authority and sometimes painfully direct. Remember, this is actually the guy who said, you have heard it said before, but I say to you. He also spoke with passion and conviction and love. Something they wouldn't have seen before. For these new uh, disciples, these four guys, this was the beginning of some massive life change. Now, whatever he was teaching, suddenly verse 23 happens. Look at it. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. What would make a demon scream like that? The authority of Jesus' purity and kingship would do it. This is grudging acknowledgement, by the way. This is not bowing down. I hope you see that. James chapter 2 verse 19 says, The demons believe even and they shudder. Why? Because they know exactly who he is and what it means for them. They know where they're headed. They know what their doom in hell is and that Jesus has the authority to send them there. Actually, when I was reading this passage, I I wondered to myself, you know, how often this guy uh, had actually come to the synagogue before and whether or not he had ever had an outburst, whether there was anything that ever was said to disturb him. Maybe he just came, joined the group, sang the songs, heard the scribes, drank the coffee, connected with some people and then left. But not today. Mark's showing us that the beginning of the kingdom of God starts with an invasion of the kingdom of darkness. And we're going to see time and again in Mark that his kingly rule will confront the evil one and his powers. It's a preview of what will actually happen in Revelation when the kingdom of God comes to its completion, its consummation, and the end of Satan's domain is not in doubt. But what strikes me here when I look at this passage is the different reactions between the demons and the people. The people were just amazed and wondered to themselves. The demons were terrified and they panicked because they knew who he was, the real Jesus. In fact, in the first half of this gospel, 
they're the only ones who actually fully understand who he is and what it means. The Pharisees didn't know who he really was. The Herodians didn't. The scribes don't. The crowds don't. Even his own disciples were kind of foggy for a lot of the time, up until the great confession of Peter in Mark chapter 8, where he says, You are the Christ. Watch Jesus now. Verse 25. Be quiet. No, let me say that again. Be quiet. He said sternly, come out of him. No dialogue, no negotiation, no formula, no incantations, no prayers, no absolute power. Verse 26, the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. Verse 28, news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. I bet it did. Now, I know that this last story um, raises more speculations uh, and questions and sidebars that I have time to dig deep on. Um, so I'm going to focus on the urgent issue first. And the first urgent issue here is if you don't know Jesus. I, I mean, consider his own words, the way he talked And then consider the spot you're in when you hear him. When he called Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts 16, verse 18, he said this to him. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Not only is Jesus saying that outside of me, everyone is under the power of Satan, he's saying your biggest issue in life is to receive forgiveness of sins by faith in him, or you will be lost forever. That's offensive, that hurts some people's feelings, that's hard, and that's the truth. And I say it to you with love and care, but I am an under-shepherd with a charge to call you to repent and to believe in this glorious Savior. And believer, listening here today, as you hear these words, as you watch Jesus move, if you hear these same words, you need to cling to them. You need to cling to the truth that you have been forgiven. You have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, you have been taken from darkness to life. When you worship him, my question is, do you give him his due? Sometimes Christians 
fall into some despair. I was thinking about that worship song before the throne of God above this morning. And there's that one verse that just says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Believer, that's what you do in the midst of any spiritual oppression. Now, the complex question, can believers be assaulted in any way by the enemy? Can they be harassed? Can they be harried? Can they be afflicted? Can they be oppressed? Yes. Well, can you specify for me exactly when that is and what that will look like? And how? No, I can't. But here's what's on my heart today. Brothers and sisters, we are in a spiritual battle. The enemy does want to harass and oppress and, uh, and confuse and afflict you. Sometimes, because of sinful choices that you make, giving them a foothold into your life, and sometimes because you are holding fast in faith and boldness, and the enemy hates what you're doing, just as he hates what I'm doing this morning here now. But we are not destined to live in fear. We are urged to look to our sovereign Savior, our great high priest, our source of strength, and to pray fervently, to remain faithful and pray in the Spirit, to equip ourselves in the armor of God fully, Ephesians 6, and to be wise to the reality that the enemy seeks to continually thwart his people and to thwart the purposes of God. And we're going to be learning more in the sermons to come about the authority of Christ and the hope-fueling promises towards his people. Now, I'd like to just do something a little different. I'd like to ask you to uh, bow your heads in prayer with me. And if you would, close your eyes. While you're sitting there in prayer, I wrote out a prayer yesterday that I want to pray over you and as you're talking to the Lord if this prayer is helpful would you just join in privately in your own conversation with the Lord Lord I submit to your authority Lord Jesus do what you would please to do in my life I belong to you be in control I submit to you, Lord. I submit to you on that thing that I've been fighting with you about. Do what pleases you. Lord, I'm going to stop telling you when to do stuff. Do it when you want to. You own me. You own time. Do your will, O God. And see in me a humble, submissive spirit. Nothing is off limits. Teach me what you want. Humble me as you would. Prune me that I would bear more fruit for you and for your glory. Lord, I submit to your authority. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.